How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, and then we will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so very grateful, thankful that for your grace that we have what we have, that we have all the spiritual blessings you've given us, that we have a heritage of freedom in this nation. And, Father, we look out upon the world scene, and we know that you have made promises to Israel, and your plans will come to fruition, and they're uh, for the good of Israel. And yet with the threats that go on, they could. Um, we know that... Uh, that you're in control, you're faithful to your plan for Israel. And that's encouraging to us because you're faithful to your promises to us. We know that uh, when we believe in Jesus Christ, we will be saved no matter what the circumstances are, no matter how difficult things look, uh, you're faithful to us. And, Father, as we continue our study about Israel in Romans 9 through 11, we pray that you might help us to understand the importance that Israel still plays in your plan and purpose and how we as believers are involved with that, the role that Israel plays in the church age. And we pray that you would give us the wisdom and skill to know uh, how we as believers can support Israel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the things that I got to do on this trip, similar but better than last year, I got to go down to uh, spend about three hours with a paratrooper company right on the Gaza border. If you think about Gaza, Gaza's down that strip that's down the southeast of Israel, and the border comes over about five miles from the Mediterranean that makes a right-angle turn and heads due south. This uh, outfit is right on that corner. And so they uh, couldn't allow me to shoot any weapons, which was a great disappointment to me. Because after the war last November, where they had a war with uh, Gaza because Gaza was shooting so many missiles at Israel, after that they couldn't do any more live firing up near the border. Now Palestinians or Gazaites are allowed to come all the way up to the border fence, so they have to avoid the semblance of any kind of uh, fighting or anything like that. But they gave me a little uh, demo and trotted out all their weapons and gave me a rundown on uh, all the weapons they have. And what this is, is a, this is a, these balls have cameras in them and they can put them on a, on a uh, post that telescopes and they can reach out around corners and see what's out there, what's happening without exposing themselves. And, or they can just roll it by itself into a room and then look around. So it's a pretty interesting piece of, uh, piece of technology. And this is an automatic grenade launcher, which is kind of a fun thing to have. I just wish I could have shot that. And all of these are controlled by those little, uh, by the iPads that are there. These are just a couple of quick, quick little videos so that you get a sense of what was, um, was going on. Then I walked outside of their uh, their living quarters and their training area uh, to the uh, border and walked along within the trenches. And so, uh, let me get the movie over here. 
on the right screen. We'll do this a little better. Okay. This area is looking out over their little fortification, the buildings they have where they're uh, protected and defended and all of their uh, sensor equipment. And then looking back over here is looking out into Gaza, this area just the, that, that's kind of a white line or white be, below the uh, grass there is where the border is. So this is looking at Gaza City, looking directly across uh, across the fence line. And that was Amos, my guide. He was a paratrooper in 73, so he was having a lot of fun that I... He says, Robbie, you get to take me to the most fun places. Well, this one has a little, little sound with it, but I'm not going to play the, the all just background noise. This is walking along and now going into the main bunker where they're... Looking over the um, uh, the border itself, and uh, you see the defenses that they have here in case uh, a rocket is shot in their direction. And now with the Palestinians being able to come up uh, very close uh, to the border within 100 yards, uh, the, that of course is, uh, is is significant for them in case uh, any rockets come their way. We also spent time on the trip. We went to Sterot, which is the largest Israeli town that is within three miles of Gaza and has taken a lot of rocket fire. And we also went to Kfar Gaza, which is a small kibbutz that's as close to the wire, uh, close to the line as as this compound is. And they've taken a lot of fire. They said 75% of the people in Kfar Gaza, which is composed of probably 1,500 people, 75% of them have been directly... Uh, affected by rocket fire. It's hit their home. It's killed uh, someone they're related to, someone in the family, or wounded somebody, or, or landed close by. Um, in a second, I'm going to get over to the edge, and we're going to see a perspective on the uh, fence itself. This is the border here, the, the fence, and then you see uh, roads on the opposite side, which is where I guess the other side can patrol, and then there are also roads on this side. But this gives you a little bit of a perspective on the um, on the defenses, on the bunkers, and on uh, that's Gaza City right in the, in the on the horizon. So you can see uh, where that's located. Other than that, there's not much else to see. But I thought you would uh, like seeing. Uh, seeing that. All right. Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. And I want to continue what we began last time talking about. Last time we looked at hermeneutics and replacement theology, and now I want to come up and just basically focus on uh, some of the hermeneutics. We looked at this passage, the opening introduction to Romans chapter 9. Now, this whole chapter, these three chapters, Romans 9 through 11, are the go-to chapter to demonstrates from the New Testament that God has not departed, canceled, abrogated his promises, his covenants to Israel. But if you don't interpret literally, then 
you're not going to come up with the right answer. If Israel means Israel, that's interpreting it literally. If Israel is a term that refers to the church, if Israel is a term that refers to uh, Christianity, that if Israel is a term for the church in the Old Testament, the church is a term for Israel in the New Testament, then you can just about make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. And this is the foundation for what is known as replacement theology. Where I'm going with this, because this is foundational to understand issues today, is uh, helping us understand the importance of a plain, literal interpretation, which we started last time. I'm going to finish up a little bit more uh, this evening. And then we're going to see how that lays the groundwork. It's basically the soil out of which uh, replacement theology and anti-Semitism grows. It doesn't mean that if somebody holds to allegorical or non-literal interpretation that they necessarily hold to, uh, hold to replacement theology or that if they do hold to replacement theology that they're uh, anti-Semitic. But that historically, once you lay that groundwork of allegorical interpretation, that's the soil out of which the Holocaust came. Uh, and, and its roots are in the late first, first century, as we'll see. Romans 9, 4, and 5 focuses on the fact that the Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises... This is Paul talking about the church age. The promises and the covenants still belong to Israel. And he's using the term Israel here in its Old Testament sense, referring to ethnic Israel, not some sort of spiritual Israel, uh, not uh, some sort of, uh, not just uh, Israelites who trust in Christ, but they, it still belongs to Israel. Just as the Abrahamic covenant applied to all Jews in the Old Testament, thus all males, as we studied on Tuesday night, had to be circumcised because they're all, uh, uh, they, they all participate in the covenant. It doesn't mean that all Jews are saved, but that, that at a natural physical level, they are all beneficiaries of the, uh, at least the earthly aspect of the promises of, of God. This is also part of the, the, the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 1, 12 through 3, the promise that they were to be a blessing to the world or the command that they were to be a blessing to the world and God's promise that he would bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And the Abrahamic covenant is the foundation for why we believe it's important for Christians to bless Israel. And there are a lot of different ways in which Christians can bless Israel, but one of the ways in which we bless Israel as a nation is in terms of our support for Israel. Now, I remember hearing pastors teach about this back in the 90s, and a lot of people ask the the question, well, does that mean that we have to uh, approve of every decision that Israel makes? No, that's not what it means. Supporting Israel means that you support their right to exist as a nation, their right to self-defense, their right to defensible borders, and their right to uh, own and possess that which has been legally given them under international law, and that we support them in that. There are going to be policies uh, good policies, bad policies, weak policies, strong policies that come out of 
the Knesset in Israel, that's their parliament, they come out of the Knesset there that not only may we not agree with, but that many is, uh, Israelis may not agree with. They have something like 14, 15, 16 different um, political parties. There's, there is a proverb among the Jews that if you have three Jews, you have five opinions. So it's just nonsense to think that saying that we support Israel means that we validate every decision that their government makes. That's not what that means. It means supporting Israel means that we support their right to exist. We support their right to uh, the legal uh, borders that have been established through international law, and that takes us back to San Remo. Uh, in 1920, which we've studied in the past, and that according to San Remo, which was signed off on by the League of Nations, 55 nations, said that is that all of the land west of the Jordan River was to be reserved for a national homeland for the Jewish people. The Arabs got ended up getting Jordan. They had Saudi Arabia. They had Lebanon. They had Syria. They had Iraq. None of those nations existed prior to 1920. The, the previous legal owner of that real estate was the Ottoman Empire. And when the Ottoman Empire broke apart at the end of World War I, then somebody had to come in and designate who the new sovereign states were going to be, and that fell to the victors of World War I. They did the same thing in Paris. The, uh, the four great powers, England, Japan, Italy, and, uh, uh, and the United States, met in Paris and imposed the Treaty of Versailles on, on, the, on the Germans. But part of what happened at, at Paris was they had to redraw the borders for the Allied powers, had redrew the borders for, for Europe, for Eastern Europe, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Germany, Austria, because remember the Austria-Hungary, Austria-Hungary Empire broke up as well. That ended with uh, World War I. The, the Balkan states, all of those borders were reestablished. It, it's what, what a lot of people don't realize is when you have a war, war is part of every war is about land and territorial rights. And it's just like if you went to war with your neighbor over where your property line was. Now, you may not have a shooting war, but you may have a legal war. And when you win... The surveyors are going to come out. They're going to resurvey the property. They're going to draw all the, where the property lines are, and then all that gets filed legally down at the courthouse. Well, on a much larger scale, at the end of World War One, that's what happened in Paris. They sent out all the surveyors, and they redrew down. To, you know, and they sent the surveyors out all throughout Europe, and they redrew all the borders, and nobody questioned their right to do it. And Poland had new borders, Germany had new borders, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Belarus, everybody had new borders. They didn't have time to deal with the border situation with the breakup of the Ottoman Empire. So they put that off, and they met in San Remo in 1920, and that's what they did in San Remo, was they redrew the borders and established the states of Syria, Iraq, Jordan, uh, Lebanon, Lebanon, and Saudi Arabia. They didn't exist before. And as part of the same document that said that um, that those nations were now coming into existence with those borders, the same document that all the Arabs accept, they accept all that part of it, the same document said all the land 
west of the Jordan. Actually, originally it said all the land west of the Jordan and all of what is now modern Jordan, uh, kingdom of Jordan, all of that was to go to the Jewish people as a as their national homeland. But they, they put a, a Abdullah or Faisal up in a, as a king of Syria, and then the French, who were go- governing in, under the mandate of the League of Nations, who were in control of Syria, the French didn't like Faisal, so they kicked him out. The trouble was, if you've watched Lawrence of Arabia, is that King Faisal had been promised a position of power and leadership by the British if he would aid them in their defeat of of the Germans and the Ottomans. So the British were forced to fulfill a promise to him, and the only thing they could do was to give them the area now known as as the Kingdom of Jordan. And Winston Churchill was, was, uh, I think, the Foreign Secretary at the time and had to sign off on that, and he hated doing it, but it was the only solution. But that left everything west of the Jordan River to be a national homeland for the Jewish people. That's the only legal document that establishes legal sovereignty over that land after the breakup of the Ottoman people. Who owned that land legally prior to uh, 1920? The Ottomans. Nobody else. The Palestinian Arabs aren't there. The only people who've ever been given sovereignty there in this League of Nations signed off on that. That's international law. The UN was supposed to defend all treaties and alliances established by the League of Nations uh, under their charter when, when the UN first started, and they just didn't do it. And at the same time, the Israelis were so concerned they would rather have a bird in the hand than two in the bush so if they were going to, would be given just any little piece of real estate, they were ready to accept that now rather than wait for something later on. So they compromised. Everybody just ignored this legal document, and it went into the files, and everybody forgot about it until the 1980s. And then uh, during the 1980s, two different legal scholars, Howard Grief, who spoke to our group last year, who I heard this morning had a heart attack two weeks ago and is now in a coma and is probably not going to survive, and Jacques Gautier, who's going to speak at the banquet at pre-trib this year, uh, have done all of the um, detailed, intricate work on pulling this information out and making it available to people, and it's gradually gaining more and more of a following to understand those things. But that's the legal argument for why Israel has a right to the land. The biblical argument, which matters to us, does may not matter to a lot of people, they don't really care what the Bible says. That's ancient history. They may not care what uh, history says, but they should care what, lo- what the law says because we claim to be a people who believe in the rule of law. And if we believe in the rule of law, we may not like the decisions made at San Remo, but guess what? If we're going to believe in the rule of law, that's where we're supposed to start. We can't just ignore it and act like it's not there. That, that's what's been going on for the last uh, 80 years. And because it's been going on like that for the last 80 years, we've had all this mess because we've, we've ignored uh, the rule of law. This all goes back to the Abrahamic, Abrahamic covenant and God's promise there. So God promises to watch out for Israel, and that hasn't changed. Now, as I pointed out in the previous two classes, there's two basic errors that have really plagued Christianity. Replacement theology, which has really come back, and nobody likes to be likes it to be called replacement theology anymore because replacement theology gave birth to the Holocaust. So we don't believe it anymore. But 
the Jews aren't God's chosen people. They've been, uh, the, the, the church is the new people of God. They, you know, they, they still believe the same thing. They just don't want to call it the same thing because replacement theology got, we, we were able to hang that around the neck of the Holocaust. But, so they don't like it, but they still promote it, and it's coming back very big in anti-Semitism. And I, I, before I came to class, I emailed a couple of links to articles uh, to, um, to Connie to send out to everybody in the congregation. One's a good article because it talks about a group of Muslims that are fighting anti-Semitism within Islam. And the other is a discouraging article but because it talks about how uh, contemporary anti-Semitism is exploding around the globe. It is a tsunami against uh, the Jewish people and against Israel. It died down for about 40 or 50 years after the Holocaust, but now it's coming back with a, with a vengeance, and we need to understand understand these issues. Now, the foundation, as I pointed out, of these two things is the is the issue of interpretation. How do you interpret the Bible? David Cooper said that when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, make no other sense, just the normal everyday use of language. Therefore, take every word at its ordinary, usual, literal meaning unless the facts of the immediate context argue for something else. So that's literal interpretation. Then I I concluded, I gave you several quotes from uh, non-literalists, from covenant theologians, on how they interpret Scripture. And one was from uh, Oswald Alice, a very well-known, famous Old Testament scholar, Westminster Seminary in the first half of the 20th century, where he said it's the insistent claims of its advocates, that's the advocates of literal interpretation, that only when interpreted literally is the Bible interpreted truly. See, that's our view. And they denounce us as, they denounce as spiritualizers or allegorizers those who do not interpret the Bible with the same degree of literalness as they do. None have made this charge more pointedly than dispensationalists, and we are the whipping boy for everything that's wrong because George Bush sent American troops into Iraq to take out Saddam Hussein. He was accused of being a dispensationalist and running foreign policy according to uh, these dispensationalists who love uh, and hope for every day, wake up hoping that the Battle of Armageddon is around the corner. I mean, that's how they caricature us. But they accuse Bush of being a dispensationist. I don't think he ever heard the word. I know that we all know he couldn't pronounce it. <laughs> but I doubt he, he's from a Methodist background. They're not dispensationalists. You know, probably the last person who really understood anything about that was President Ronald Reagan. He uh, allegedly did read Late Great Planet Earth, which made an impact on him. Uh, Alice also said the Old Testament prophecies, if literally interpreted, cannot be regarded as having been fulfilled or as being capable of fulfillment in this present age. That's right. They can't be fulfilled literally in this present age. But what they believe is that the kingdom, they're amillennialists, which means no millennial, no literal millennium, no literal thousand-year physical reign of Jesus on the earth. And so they've spiritualized the kingdom. The kingdom is now Jesus ruling over the church from heaven. And so we are the kingdom. If you pay attention to listening to a lot of people, they always you'll hear a lot of people use terms like, well, we're going to do this for the kingdom. I don't see a lot of that kind of terminology in the scripture, but it's very popular among uh, a lot of evangelicals today. 
uh, it comes out of really a non-literal interpretation uh, of, and teaching on the kingdom. But that's their view. They have a non-literal view of the kingdom. Jesus Christ rules and reigns in your hearts today, and that's the kingdom. We're living in the millennium. We're in the kingdom. Aren't you glad? I was like what Tommy says. Tommy says, if this is the millennium, then I'm living in a millennial ghetto. So we have some passages. I just want to give, read a couple of examples to you. Sometimes people think I make stuff up. Uh, Isaiah 65, 25, the wolf and the lamb, notice it's not the lion and the lamb, it's the wolf and the lamb, shall graze together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall do no evil or harm in my holy mountain. Now this is talking about uh, Israel and the kingdom once it, the Israelites have returned and Israel has been restored to the land and the kingdom established. This is comparable to what Revelation talks about as the curse being rolled back. Uh, we have antagonism and uh, we have carnivorous animals in the animal kingdom because of the curse of sin. That wasn't God's original design or intent. And so now we live in a, in a time when the wolf and the lamb, well, the wolf looks at the lamb like it's a dinner, and the lamb, well, they're just too stupid to know. But they will graze together. Notice the wolf becomes herbivorous. He, the wolf will graze. There will be a change that takes place in the animals, just like there was originally a change. All the animals were originally created as, as herbivores, and their dental structure, gastrointestinal system, everything changed as a result of the, uh, of the curse, but there were still wolves and lions and jaguars and whatever. So this is a prediction that wolves literally, how do you normally take those words? A wolf is a wolf is a wolf. A lamb is a lamb, and uh, the lion is a lion, and a serpent is a serpent. Now, as most commentators point out, this reiterates a statement that is parallel to it from Isaiah chapter 11, talking about when the uh, uh, root of Jesse, uh, the branch, comes forth and rules over the kingdom. So again, it's a messianic prophecy talking about the millennial kingdom. And in that prophecy describing the nature of the kingdom, we read, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The only time a leopard lies down with the young goat today is when the young goat's in its belly. Uh, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fat link together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. The cow is grazing today, but not the bear. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Are we to take this literally? Well, see, a lot of people come to this and say, well, Lions can't eat straw. That's absurd. The Bible has to be talking about something else. We can't interpret this literally. So I thought that I would just read uh, a little bit uh, of this to you so that you catch a, uh, just a sense of what goes on. This is from a, uh, a very scholarly commentary, the New International Commentary Series on the Old Testament, <clears throat> written by John Oswald on Isaiah. And he writes, uh, commenting on these verses, <clears throat> that um, he says, uh, with a classic set of images, the prophet portrays the kind of security and safety which will result in the rule of the Messiah. 
The most helpless and innocent will be at ease with those who are formerly the most rapacious and violent. Notice he's already shifted it. He's not talking about literal lambs and literal lions. He's not talking about literal wolves. He, sa- he says these represent uh, the, the, the lamb and uh, the ox. These would represent the most uh, insecure, the most innocent and helpless in a culture, and the lion and the uh, uh, bear uh, and, the, uh, <coughs> and the leopard represent the most rapacious uh, and violent members of a culture. And he says there are three ways of interpreting... Uh, such statements. The first is literalistic. Notice they don't do us the favor of saying just literal. It's literalistic that there's a hidden pejorative in the way they even state that. And this is a, this is a well-known academic. I mean, this is typical. This isn't somebody who's trying to throw rocks at, at dispensation at dispensationalists, but he, but he does subtly. The first is literalistic, looking for a literal fulfillment of the words. While this interpretation is possible, the fact that the lion's carnivorousness is fundamental to what a lion is. Now, where in the world did he get that idea? He says that the lion's carnivorousness is fundamental to what makes a lion a lion. But wait a minute. See, it betrays right away that he's got a faulty view of creation. God, In our view, God did not create lions as as being carnivorous. That's not what Genesis 1 says. It says God created uh, them to eat from the, uh, from, from, the, from the field, and something changed. It was sin. So that shows a, a non-literal view of Genesis as well. So he goes on to say that uh, uh, since carnivorousness is fundamental to what a lion is and that literal fulfillment of the prophecy would require a basic alternation of the lion's nature. See, he has set up a completely false description of, of, of what the essence of a lion is. Since the essence of a lion is being a carnivore, God couldn't change that or it wouldn't be a lion anymore. See, this is just playing silly word games. Um, so he goes on to say a second means of interpretation is spiritualistic. The animals represent various spiritual condition and states within human beings. See Calvin. We'll see. I'll read you Calvin in a minute. That's a hoot. Um, the animals represent various spiritual conditions and states within human beings. Where do you get that idea? Is it in the text? No. You're reading it into the text from some prior idea. Um, he says, while this avoids the problems of literal fulfillment, it introduces a host of other problems, chief of which is the absence in the text of any controls upon the process. Wow. But you're going to make that same mistake before you're done, buddy. Uh, thus, it depends solely upon the exegete's ingenuity to find the correspondence uh, where correspondence might be. The third way of interpreting this passage, and others like it, is the figurative. I love the way he parses the difference between figurative and spiritualistic. It's, it's echoes of a president saying, well, it all depends on the meaning of is. Vocabulary, it, the details of vocabulary where the battle rages. So he says, in this approach, one concludes that an extended figure of speech, nothing in the text indicates it's a figure of speech, that it's an extended figure of speech is being used to make a single overarching point, namely that in the Messiah's reign, the fears associated with insecurity, danger, and evil will be removed, and not only for the individual, but for the world as well. 
My, my, my. Calvin said, in a word, under these figures, the prophets teach the same truth, which Paul plainly affirms, that Christ came together out of a state of disorder, those things which are uh, gathered together out of a state of disorder, those things which are in heaven and which are on the earth. See, Calvin's interpreting this whole thing is this is really talking about the church and that once you're saved, that old sin nature, the wolfness, the lionness, that's going to go away and everybody in the church is going to cuddle up together. That's basically what he says. Um, He said, maybe that's summed up, Christ will come to drive away everything hurtful out of the world and to restore to its former beauty the world which lay under the curse. For this reason, he says, the straw will be the food of the lion, blah, blah, blah. And then uh, in other quotes related to uh, Isaiah uh, 65, he brings in the idea of the church, which he brings in there. So this applies to the church today, but it was written by Isaiah. So that's the problem that we see in where uh, the literal literal fulfillment goes. So Calvin says in Isaiah 65:18, which reads, "But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create, the new creation of of the kingdom in the millennial kingdom." That's the context of Isaiah 65. God says, for behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. Now, our friend that I read through the first time, Oswald, says this isn't literal Jerusalem. It's talking about the church. Uh, Calvin says, at first sight, this might be thought harsh, but an excellent meaning is obtained that the ground of joy is the deliverance of the church. Where do we see the church in the passage? You see, that's how many, many Christians interpret the Bible. It's through this kind of non-literal uh, view. Incidentally, that's why they get sucked into a liberal view of interpreting the Constitution as a living document, that it's symbolic, because they've been prepared for that because they go to these liberal churches every Sunday and get taught this, and they've been taught this spiritualized, allegorized, way of doing hermeneutics since the time they were, and then that was reinforced in every literature class they took in most colleges and universities. I never could make sense of poetry until I had dear old Dr. Wyatt, who was had one foot in the grave. She seemed ancient. She was probably no older than I am now, but she seemed ancient when I was in college, and she taught Wordsworth and Coleridge from a literal hermeneutic, and she would go throughout, you know, show us pictures of the uh, lake region in England and talk about their lives and what was happening in their life when they wrote this poetry. And all of a sudden, poetry made sense because she applied a literal hermeneutic to poetry, and it made sense. See, I was brought up in a church that held a literal interpretation, so that's what formed my mentality, why I never could understand this kind of subjectivism in interpretation. So Calvin says that this relates to the church. Isaiah 2.1, my last example I'll give you, this is another great passage talking about the millennial kingdom, that it will come to pass in the latter days, I'm looking at verse 2, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. So this is talking about a, a, a new mountain of the Lord's house, there'll be a new temple. It's the this is the millennial temple that will there will be according to other prophetic passages uh, that there'll be a sort of an upthrust from the earth. The mountain uh, of of the Lord, the temple mount, will enlarge, and the new temple will be built on that. 
uh, if you interpret it literally. And all the nations will come in the millennial kingdom to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. Many people, verse 3 says, will, shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, this guy, Oswald, has a, like three paragraphs on on trying to make sense out of the word Zion, that it can't really be this little t- tiny mountain in, in Jerusalem. And it never did make sense to me. But he goes on to say, one does not need to give the actual city some sort of semi-eternal status. See, it's not talking about literal Jerusalem. Uh, you don't need to give the actual city some sort of semi-eternal status to recognize the point of the saying. Jerusalem has become a symbol of God's self-revelation through history, and there's no life apart from him who has revealed himself supremely in that context. That's what those, that's how he interprets those verses. Doesn't even make, where does he get this? Calvin said, he's added a confirmation that the restoration of the church, that's all we need to read. Isaiah 2 is about the restoration of the church. Okay? And then we read, he shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. Incidentally, this is the verse, Isaiah 2, 4, is the verse that is uh, over the entryway to the United Nations. This, is, this states their pur- purpose for their founding was to bring world peace by beating uh, swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. By doing that, by putting a Bible, this Bible verse over the entry to the, to the United Nations, the UN took upon itself a messianic mission. They are an idolatrous organization because they claim to be able to do what the Bible says that only the Messiah will be able to do. So from that point, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, you should have nothing to do with the UN. It has put itself in the place of the Messiah. But then I'm radical. Uh, Oswald says in his commentary, persons have learned, uh, blah, 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 let's just skip over most of this. Uh, He says, when these principles are extended to the nations, this is about halfway down, world peace can result. However, the thought of producing peace on any other ground is folly. Until persons and nations have come to God to learn his ways and walk in them, peace is an illusion. This does not mean that the church merely waits for the second coming to look for peace. Where does he get the church? See, they're reading the church into all of these passages. And that's the main thing I wanted to, uh, wanted to illustrate here and give you an idea of how the spiritual or allegorical interpretation works. Now, where did this come from? When did this come into the church? Well, the first person to really, uh, really systematize this is Origen. And Origen, uh, main biographer, one of his primary biographers, a man named Joseph Trigg, who writes about Origen, the fundamental criticism of Origen, beginning during his own lifetime, was that he used allegorical interpretation to provide a specious justification for reinterpreting Christian doctrine in terms of Platonic philosophy. Okay? So... He basically, Origen is the one who finally moved the church away from a literal interpretation. Prior to that, 
they the church had a mix. It, it's not true that they were always literal. It, they, they really hadn't refined their view of interpretation. So it was a mix of a little allegory and a little literal interpretation, and that's why they never got that solidified. But Origen came out of Alexandria in northern Egypt. It's important to understand this. Alexandria uh, had become the seat of, of Greek philosophy. After the Roman Empire conquered Greece, the seat for Greek philosophy moved from uh, up north in Greece down to Egypt. So uh, the focal point and foundation for Greek philosophy, the development teaching of Greek philosophy was in Alexandria. That was where they had the Alexandrian Library, which was the best library in the world at the time. And so Alexandria is just a focal point for Platonic thought. And in Platonic thought, the literal physical world is not really important. What's important is what it stands for. It's a, it's just a physical represent, representative of the ultimate ideal. What's important is the ideal, not this shadow that we see in front of us. And so this affects their, their view of life. So it affects the fact that material things aren't that important. That's why material pleasures in Platonism and in the way it affects the monastic movement later on are not that important. You don't need to feed the body. That's evil. We need to focus, just go, go off into the desert, go live by ourselves in a monastery, and focus on the eternal things, and everything will be wonderful. Greek philosophy dominated the area in northern Africa. Now, in Antioch, the same Antioch in Syria that we've studied with Paul, where that 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 location uh, stayed a center of strong, uh, solid, orthodox doctrine for several hundred years. And Antioch was the seat of a literal interpretation. They, those folks in Antioch emphasized a literal interpretation of Scripture. And guess what? They were also premillennial. And that influenced all of the area up through Turkey and up through Constantinople. And so those areas held to a more literal interpretation of Scripture. And they were, uh, uh, they, they were, uh, premillennial. Uh, a couple of the early uh, church fathers were uh, Polycarp and Papias, and the Alexandrians hated Papias. But Papias and Polycarp were both directly uh, discipled and taught by the Apostle John. And maybe Papias had even met the Apostle Paul. They had a literal interpretation, and they were premillennial in their writings. But they're hated by the Alexandrians, including Origen. They just uh, ridiculed them in their writings, according to, uh, according to Eusebius, who also ridiculed, uh, ridiculed Papias. That's kind of the background. So Origen comes out of Alexandria, and he develops this whole way of interpreting Scripture. Ronald DeProsi, in his book on Israel and the, and the church, and the last two weeks I had it with me, and today I don't, but that's a picture of it, uh, says of Origen that he motivated this view by appealing to the principle of divine inspiration and by affirming that often statements made by the biblical writers are not literally true and that many events presented as historical are inherently impossible. Thus, only simple believers will limit themselves to the literal meaning of the text. What Origen did was he said, just like the individual is made up of body, soul, and spirit, every text has three meanings. 
the literal meaning, the soulish meaning, and the spiritual meaning. And the literal meaning may or may not even be true. But what really matters is the symbolic or spiritual meaning. But how do you get there? See, there's no control on how you get that spiritual meaning. But Origen is the one who takes this. It's already been developed for probably a 100 years, and he systematized it. He was brilliant. He was a brilliant heretic. And, uh, uh, and, and he sets this stage so that within a 100 years of his death, he's like the late 100s into the early 200s. By a 100 years later with, with uh, Augustine, Augustine's going to take that and systematize that into a whole amillennial, non-literal uh, interpretation that is inherently anti-Semitic and, and full-bore replacement theology. DeProsi comments on uh, Origen also. He says, an attitude of contempt toward Israel had become the rule by Origen's time. This is like 200 to 250. Um, the new element in his view of Israel is his perception of them as manifesting no elevation of thought. See, there's nothing really valuable in the Old Testament. As I talked about on Tuesday night, in the early church, they're dumping the Old Testament, it's not important, it's tied to Israel. They weren't important. See, they're the, they're the Christ killers. So they're just dumping uh, the Old Testament. It's not important to know the Old Testament to understand the New Testament. He goes on to say that it follows that the interpreter must always posit a deeper or higher meaning for prophecies related to Judea, Jerusalem, Israel, Judah, and Jacob, which... Origin affirms are not being understood by us in a carnal sense. In other words, there's not a literal meaning. You read the words Judea, Jerusalem, Israel, Judah. These are not to be understood literally. They're really talking about spiritual truth related to Christ and the church. In Origin's understanding, the only positive function of physical Israel was that of being a type of spiritual Israel, which is the church which is us. See, there's an inherent anti-Jewishness, an inherent uh, anti-Semitism that's, that's already percolating by the early, uh, early third century. He says the promises were not made to physical Israel because she was unworthy of them and incapable of understanding. Thus, Origen effectively disinherits physical Israel. So Israel, by the time you get 150 years after the death of the last apostle, Israel is completely uh, cut out. This leads to what is known as replacement theology. So what I've done is I've shown how you move from, from a, a literal to a non-literal interpretation. Once you do that, you pretty much cut your anchor cords to any kind of objective guidelines for determining the meaning of the text. This eventually led to to treating all of these terms like Israel, Judea, Judah, uh, Jacob, in non-literal ways, so that Israel doesn't mean Israel anymore, it means the church, and the church doesn't mean the church anymore, it means Israel. And this leads to replacement theology. So what is replacement theology? Replacement theology is the view that the church is the new or true Israel that has permanently replaced or superseded national Israel as the people of God, and therefore national Israel will not experience a restoration to the land of Israel or to a position of favor with God. Now, by in this quote, national Israel basically means ethnic Israel, ethnic Jews. 
So replacement theology basically says there's no longer anything significant about it being an ethnic Jew, and there's nothing significant about national Israel, that the church now inherits all of the promises that God made to the church. Well, we just read Romans Romans 9, 4, that the promises belong to Israel. See, this is a direct contradiction of Scripture. Now, another word that is used for replacement theology, this is the technical large word, and and I'm reading this more and more. When I first read this word about seven or eight years ago, I was like, why don't they just keep calling it replacement theology? But now I understand that that nobody wants to admit that they believe in replacement theology. So the term that they're using is supersession. When one thing supersedes something else, it basically replaces it. But now we have a, a nice, neutral academic term so we can blow smoke up everybody's skirt. Uh, supersessionism is another word that derives from two Latin words, super, which means on or upon, and sedere, which means as when one person sits on the chair of another and displaces the latter. So one thing replaces, uh, replaces another. So that here we have Israel, and Israel is now superseded by the church, and Israel no longer matters. Walt Kaiser was the president of... Um, uh, Gordon Conwell Seminary up in Boston. He was a dispensationalist, and he writes, Replacement theology declared that the church, Abraham's spiritual seed, had replaced national Israel and that it had transcended and fulfilled the terms of the covenant given to Israel, which covenant Israel had lost because of disobedience. Their view is that the replacement theology view is that the covenant with Abraham is not permanent because they killed the Messiah, they lost the covenant. That ended it. DeProsi writes, Replacement theology is the view that the church completely and permanently replaced ethnic Israel in the working out of God's plan and as a recipient of Old Testament promises to Israel. Hans LaRondel, who is a covenant theologian, says the New Testament affirms that Israel would no longer be the people of God and would be replaced by people that would accept the Messiah and his message of the kingdom of God. See, that's their message. So if Israel doesn't matter, then it doesn't matter who's over there uh, trying to carve out a, a nation on on the uh, west side of the Jordan. They're irrelevant spiritually, and whatever they do is not significant. It doesn't matter because God not, doesn't have anything to do with the Jews anymore. And you can see how this mentality gave rise to Uh, tacit approval of the Holocaust. Now, there are four different types of supersessionism. There's political supersessionism. This is the view that uh, the replacement of the Jewish people, their worship in their land by a political power that claims superior religious status. So Rome replaced, dominated, defeated the Jews, controlled them. Islam conquered the land, so they're superior uh, to uh, to the Jews. That's political supersessionism. And if you go to Jerusalem, if you're walking down uh, from the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley from the um, uh, from the Dome of the Rock, from the Temple Mount, if you get level with the top of the Dome of the Rock, which you don't necessarily see from other vantage points, is that the Dome of the Rock is taller 
And right behind it, you can see the, the two domes of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is about a maybe a quarter to a third of a mile on the other side of the Dome of the Rock. And the, the, the Muslims built the Dome of the Rock up higher than the Church of the Holy Sepulchre domes to prove that Islam was superior to, to Christianity. And they put the Dome of the Rock on the, on the site of the, of the temple to show that they had conquered Israel. That is a political, militant supersessionism right there. If you go inside, something I learned last year, if you go inside the Dome of the Rock, and to us we just see all the scribble up on the walls, and that's the Arabic quotations from the Quran, and all of those citations were chosen to be written inside the Dome of the Rock to because they all relate to, they all say something about how Jesus is just a man, Jesus couldn't be God, God didn't have any wives, God didn't have any babies, the whole Dome of the Rock is a theological statement of the superiority of Islam over Christianity and that Jesus is nothing but a man. You never heard that anywhere from anybody, but that's there. Came back, checked it out. You can find some websites that actually list the English translation of all those verses. Then there's punitive supersessionism, which was represented by such early figures in the church as Hippolytus, Origen, and Luther, and and that's the view that the Jews who reject Jesus as the as the Messiah are consequently condemned by God and have to forfeit the promises otherwise uh, due to them under the covenants that 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 God replaces them as a punishment. Now these are not mutually exclusive; they, they can all be present in the same group. There's economic supersessionism, which is the uh, is a, using the term economic like dispensationalism in a technical theological sense. The view that the practical purpose of the nation of Israel and God's plan is replaced by the role of the church, and this is represented by writers such as Justin Martyr and uh, Augustine. And then there's structural supersessionism. This is uh, Solon's term. He's another scholar researching on this. Uh, for the de facto marginalization of the Old Testament as normative for Christian thought. The Hebrew scriptures are considered to be largely indecisive for shaping Christian convictions. In other words, you don't really need to know the Old Testament. And see that, how that subtly in, you know, infiltrated a lot of evangelicals, dispensationalists. But you start talking to people about, uh, about the Old Testament, they don't know it. They haven't been taught it so much. It's one of the reasons that I've spent so much time in my ministry teaching the Old Testament, because if you don't understand the Old Testament, you don't understand the New Testament. And sadly, even within dispensationalism, many emphasize so much the, the, the truths related to being in Christ that they ignored the Old Testament. I knew a one pastor in Dallas who was a great teacher, great dispensationalist, but he spent 40 years in his ministry, and he only taught uh, the primary Pauline epistles, the, especially the ones like Ephesians and Colossians and Romans that, that, that focused on what we have in Christ. He never taught the Old Testament. Well, if you don't understand the Old Testament, you can't really get your hands around these New Testament passages because they're filled with quotations from the Old Testament. You have to understand the whole counsel of God. So these are elements that have still survived within a lot of evangelicalism that, that have their root in a hostility to Israel from the very early days of Christianity. 
So what are their core beliefs of uh, replacement theology? Well, it's already 835, so I'm going to stop here. This will be a good place to start next time on the core beliefs of replacement theology. Next time what I want to do is I want to finish out replacement theology. That will take about half the class. And then we're going to start in on the rise and development of anti-Semitism and how that manifests itself today. And I want to start addressing the question, is can a person be neutral to Israel or anti-Zionist and and not be anti-Semitic? Or another way of put it, is anti-Zionism just a a mask for anti-Semitism? And I'll give you a hint. In most cases, it is. Anti-Zionism, when you really understand history and all of the issues involved, when you understand what anti-Zionism stands for, then you're going to realize that it's basically giving tacit approval to the destruction of the Jews because you're basically saying, I don't want the Jews to have a home base, a free base, a place where they can be protected from persecution and where they can relax and not have fear that the government is going to attack them simply because they're Jewish. So anti-Zionism is basically saying, oh, the Jews don't need to have their own place. They, we can take care of them in the nations of the world where they can be safe and secure. And that isn't going to happen. So anti-Zionism is inherently anti-Semitic. I don't care what some politicians say. I don't care how they, some people try to finesse it. If you don't want to support Israel, and that doesn't necessarily mean uh, what a lot of people think it does, but if you don't believe Israel has a right to defend itself, the right to their borders, and that we should help them because that's part of blessing Israel, and that Israel even today is a distinct people of God and has a distinct role in in, in God's plan, then that's an that 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 is a subtle form of of anti-Semitism and is extremely uh, dangerous. And so, as we go through this next time, we'll kind of wrap this up as a backdrop for understanding the importance of the doctrines that are contained in Romans 9 to 11. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to to focus on this and to get a little better understanding of what we believe. Every time you study uh, some sort of distortion or uh, some sort of false teaching, it always helps to focus and clarify what, what we believe. Father, we pray again for wisdom for the Israeli leaders. We pray for them in this time as the the threats around them continue to multiply. And we know that your hand is on history. You're guiding and directing things. And we pray that they might uh, exercise great wisdom. And also at the same time, we know that you're in control. And we pray that this also might be an opportunity to give rise to many opportunities to be a faithful witness to your word to our Jewish friends. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.